All right, let's go ahead and get started. Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 as we continue our series, The Stories of Life. So, a woman comes home after shopping and shows her husband a very expensive dress that she bought. And her husband says to her, why did you buy that? You know we can't afford it. And she says, well, here's the deal. I was walking by the store, and I looked in the window, and I saw this dress, and the devil whispered in my ear, you would look fabulous in that. So I, I went in. I went in and tried it on. And you know what? I, did, I, I, I look good. I look good. And so he says to her, well, why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? And, and she says, well, I did. And you know what? He said I look good from that perspective too. <laughs> it's not a good excuse to go out and buy dresses, lady. Ladies. Lady Kelly. Like I'm talking to her. I'd love her to go out and buy a dress. You know, people have some strange ideas about Satan. You know, the, I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it yet, but from my, my understanding, there's a show out called Lucifer. I actually know the show's out there. And uh, from what I understand about it, it that, you know, is a, is a show about Satan, you know, kind of hanging out on the earth. Because from what I understand, he was bored in hell. Okay, some really weird misconceptions of who the devil is. And there are many in the world, including some in mainstream churches who deny the very existence of the devil. They say he doesn't exist. They just describe him as a, 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 a personification of evil. They say, take the D off of devil, and what do you have? Evil. evil. Well, my encouragement to everyone who believes that, read your Bible. If you read the Bible, including a text like this one today, you cannot walk away from it and, and, and minimize the devil or Satan. You can't, you can't just you know, you know, ex explain him away. He is a real being, a being of immense power and only evil to intent always. Jesus said this about him in John 10.10. The thief, another name for the devil, does not come except for two th three things. Th three things. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Anytime he shows up, that's what he's trying to do. To steal, to kill, or destroy. He has other names. He's also called the deceiver. He's called the accuser. He is famously the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible, and then we see him at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation as the dragon. He's there at the beginning, he's there throughout the middle, and he's there at the end. Now, the devil would really like it if we didn't believe that he existed. He would really like that. He really encourages that mindset that he doesn't exist. Because if we don't believe that he exists, then he is free to do whatever he wants without resistance. But you know what? The Bible tells us to resist him. And so we must have an idea how to do that. 
he does exist. We need to know what to do when he or his, his, his system shows up in our lives, his influence shows up in our lives. We need to know what to do about it. We need to know how to act. We need to know how to respond. And so we're going to look at how Jesus responded to the devil in the hopes that we might learn some things about how we can respond to him because that's, what, that's one of the main reasons why it's in there. It's to teach us how to live this thing we call the Christian life. Because I don't know about you, but temptation comes, right? Yeah, the only people that don't face temptation are people that are in comas. So they're probably the only ones that aren't going to benefit from this. So if you're in a coma out there, sorry, I can't help you today. You know, but everybody else, everybody else. If you are living and breathing in this world, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not, you are facing temptation. Now, if you're not a believer, that's probably no big deal to you. I, you know, I used to say when I, was, when I was a heathen pagan, you know, I can resist anything except temptation. But God calls us to. And I'm going to explain to you why. It's so important that we understand what temptation is and why we ought to be resisting it and why we ought to be making different choices in our life. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we come today realizing that we are we are weak we are tired we are sick we are in some cases helpless and lord temptations come and lord it's it's usually they come when we are in one of those states when it's when it's a lot harder to resist is when they often come when we're strong it's easier to resist but when we're weak it's hard and i know I know, Lord, as I talk to any size group, that there are going to be some that are in that state, in one of those states, and they are facing temptation. They are facing some sort of a difficult choice and decision in life. Sometimes it's just an everyday life. And so, Lord, I know this message ultimately applies to all of us, including myself, starting with me, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive from you what you want to say to your church, Lord, because I believe you want us to face temptation. Not to run away from it, but to face it and deal with it in the same way that Jesus is going to deal with it today. And so give us your spirit today to teach us how to do this thing we call the Christian life. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. title of this morning's message is, How to Live Your Story. I've been saying that God is writing a story. He's writing a story, the story of Christ in your life, of Christ working in your life, that your life, you're not living a life just for you. You don't exist just for you. You know, sometimes you think that. You know, my life is about me. I am the king of my universe. But no, you're not. Jesus is the king of your universe, and God is writing a story about him in your life. We play a part in it, and today we're going to talk about a big part that we play in the story of Christ in our lives. And we're going to look at, that, at the story of Christ specifically and how he dealt with some things. If you ever watch a movie, say yes. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry, I don't know why that came out. And then later, a movie comes out, the same movie comes out with an alternate ending. You ever see one of those? And if you ever watch it, I don't know about me, I just don't even bother anymore. Because the alternate ending is usually, rarely, as good as the original ending, right? I mean, I mean that, otherwise, they would have put the alternate ending in the original movie. So they leave it out for whatever reason. 
I just was ready to go off on a full-blown tangent right there. I'm going to stop right here. God is writing a story in your life, right? He's written a script. When did he write it? A long time ago. Before the foundation of the universe, before the foundation of this thing we call the world and time, he wrote the script of your life. Did you know that? Your story was already written. And you know what? When he wrote it, how good was it? Say it like you believe it. Come on, church. Perfect. Perfect. And then he does something that is a little odd. He allows opportunities to go off script. He gives us opportunities. He allows opportunities to come into our lives to write a different story. And that's what we're going to see exactly what happened today as God allowed Satan to give Jesus opportunities to change the story that God wrote. Ultimately, every temptation that comes into your life is an opportunity to change God's story. God's story was perfect. God's will is perfect. And he wrote this story and he said, you live this story. And then these, these temptations come. Temptation is an opportunity to write a different chapter, a different page, a different sentence in the story. We're going to look at the devil giving Jesus three opportunities to write a different story, and we'll look at each one of them individually and see how they relate to us. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Uh, say, uh, yeah. 40 days, you're going to get hungry. Earlier this year, I'm part of a, a men's discipleship group. And one of the assignments we have in that group is to fast from food for three days. Man, was that hard. Oh, that was hard. I made it. First time ever. I've, I've done this program for, for 13 years or something like that. 14 years. And this was the very first year I actually did a three-day fast. But man, I suffered through it. And you know when the suffering started? Right at the very first meal I missed. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I am never going to make it. But God, by God's grace that I did. It's interesting, this account that we have here in the Gospel of Luke is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, almost verbatim. The only difference is the second and third temptations are reversed. So if you come to the class after church, we'll talk about why that is. Mark mentions it, so it's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So Mark mentions it, but he doesn't give any details. The only significant detail, one of the significant details that he gives, is that it happened immediately after Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized, 
the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. The Father from heaven spoke, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. And then it seems, that, according to Mark, immediately, I mean, maybe still dripping from the water from the Jordan River, he is led out into the wilderness with the wild animals, as we see in Mark, and without food for 40 days. He's out there all by himself in absolute aloneness by himself in the wilderness without food. Now, we're t- we, we, science tells us that a strong, healthy person can go 40 days without food. They can actually make it. That wouldn't be me. I'd go a three, I was sure, I'm sure three and a half days would have killed me. 40 days, you can do it. But, they say, that person would be on the verge of death. Most of us couldn't do it. Most of us would not live even probably half the time before it would, it would kill us. Jesus lived. He was able to do it because he was. He was 30 years old. He was strong. He was healthy. He was able to do it. But he would have been absolutely at the end of himself. Physically, he would have been, there would have been nothing left in him. He was on the verge of death. It was then that the temptations really came into power. Holy Spirit led him out there. Led him out there to be tempted by the devil. Led him out there and then inspired him or, or, or led him to go without food for 40 days to get to this point of absolute desperation. Absolute and utter <clears throat> excuse me, weakness. I, maybe it's just me, <clears throat> but I read something like that and say, why? Why does Jesus need to be tempted? Because you have to assume that if he was let out there to do that, there was a reason for it, right? Would you acknowledge that? that, that the, you know, there's got to be a reason for that to happen. But what is the reason? Excuse me just a second. One of the clues, I believe, is in another word that we use that is synonymous with temptation, and that is the word testing. You see, you see that those two words being used synonymously. Temptations and testing. A temptation is a test. That's one of the things we need to understand about it. A temptation is a test, and ultimately is a test from whom? God. God is testing us. And the test is very simple. Will you stay on my script? Or will you allow a different script to be written in your life? Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Another question I have is, can Jesus be tempted? You know, we as, as a church believe certain things about Jesus. One of those things is he is God, right? That's one of the things we believe. Yeah, well, one person agrees with me, thank you. I know the rest of you do, come on. Yes, Jesus is God, right? And so, can he even be tempted? The writer of Hebrews gives us the answer to that. In Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, notice this, these next couple of words, in all things, 
What do you think all things means? Everything, right? In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He being Jesus there. Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. What he's saying, that in all things he had to be made like his brethren. He had, to be make, he had to be made like humans. He had to be human. For him to be an effective high priest for us, he had to be like us. And he had to be like us in all things, it says. So he didn't, you know, he, he's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. It's one of the doctrines of, of the church. We believe that he is God, 100%. Never stop being God. But he also took on human flesh. How much human flesh? All of it. All of it. He didn't just shrug off these temptations which you might imagine if he's God that he can just, well, you know, no big deal. You, you put whatever in front of me you want. It's not going not to tempt me. It's not what happened. Verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted. What, is it, what does it say there? That Jesus was tempted. He was tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. The Bible tells us he was tempted, but did not sin. Did not sin. The fact that he was tempted was a real temptation. There was some form of suffering that took place during the temptations. So much so that now he can relate to us in our suffering through temptations. So if a temptation comes into your life, you've got to understand. Jesus understands. Jesus understands. He has suffered through those same temptations. The temptations of Christ were allowed for a reason. And they were allowed to prove something to the world. They were given so that the world would know something about him. Harry Ironside said this, He was not tempted to find out if he could sin, but to prove that he was the sinless one. God took him out in the wilderness. He just he just you know, dunked him and anointed him as the, as the Messiah, sends him out in the wilderness, starves him nearly to death, and then sends out the greatest temptations that could possibly happen so that we would be absolutely convinced that he is the sinless one. He is without sin. Even in the most desperate situation, even in a situation where he could have very easily given in to any of these temptations, he did not. He is, in fact, God's Son, the Messiah, the perfect one, which made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And this proved that the, the approval of God was deserved. Go back to Luke 4. Luke records three temptations. There is a sense that Jesus was being tempted during the entire 40 days, though some commentators believe it was only at the very end that Satan came and tempted him. You know, we can go both ways on that. But Luke records these three temptations. The Apostle Paul tells us that there are basically three categories of all temptation. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says this. <clears throat> 
excuse me. Do not love the world or the things of the world in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. These are the three categories of all temptation. All temptation can be, can be categorized in one of those three. <clears throat> and the devil's temptations of Christ follow that pattern exactly. Interesting. Look at the first one, the lust of the flesh. Verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus is hungry, right? 40 days without food, he is hungry, desperately hungry. He has a real physical need. He needs to eat soon or he's going to die. This is where the lust of the flesh exists. It's within our needs and desires. If you have a need and desire in you, and you do because you're human and alive, you've got needs and desires. That's where the lust of the flesh is born. Within our physical needs, it uses the, the term lust, the lust of the flesh. The word lust is typically interpreted negatively, but that's not, that's not a pure meaning of it. It can be interpreted both positively and negatively. It means deep desire, longing, or craving. Now, we can do that in a positive way. We can, we can, we can love God with great desire, with deep desire. And it has a positive connotation, though we typically give it a negative one. Each of us can look inside of ourselves and we can see that we have appetites, we have desires, we have needs, real needs that God implanted in us. There are needs within you that God gave you, but it's there where the opportunity of temptation is born. And it's not just for food. It could be for anything. There are, there are lots of needs and desires that we have. You know, desire for affirmation, affection, companionship, sex. All of those are, are real needs that, that are in us, and they're in us typically for a reason, and many of them are God-given, and they have, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place for each and every one of them. And there's a godly fulfillment for all of them. But each of them is also an opportunity to rewrite the story that God has given to us. It's our needs and our desires that make us vulnerable to temptation. And we need to understand that. If anybody tells you, oh, I'm immune to temptation, separate yourself from them immediately. Because they're headed for a fall. Big one someplace. Devil loves those ones. That's pride of life that comes later. Satan told Jesus, command the stones to become bread which implies that Jesus could have done it, right? And we, we know that. He did it. He did it later, if you remember. So interesting, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the message. You know, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which we'll eventually get to, you know, Jesus took a, just a few loaves and some fishes and multiplied them miraculously and fed thousands. There was no record of him eating during that time. The same thing with the 4,000. He fed everybody else, but there's no record of him eating. Just a little quick thought. Just don't spend any time on that right now. Focus on this. 
Sorry, I shouldn't even have said it. Verse 4, Jesus responds. Why? You know, the question I, you know, I asked myself, and I actually wrote in my notes, Jesus could have done it. He was hungry. He could have done it. He could have changed those stones into bread and fed himself, met that basic need. Why didn't he do it? And you spiritual people already know the answer. Verse 4 says, But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Satan is tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands to fill this need that he has. That's a real need. And there's no questioning. It's a need in his life. And it needs to be filled. And what Jesus is saying, hey, 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 it's not for me to fill it. God led me out in the wilderness. He told me to fast. He told me not to eat any food. And so I'm waiting until he tells me something else. At the end of the story, which is not recorded in this gospel, but in Mark and Matthew and Mark's, it says the angels came and ministered to him, which I'm thinking means they brought him a pizza and... Diet Coke, maybe, maybe not diet. I don't know. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's interesting that one of the realities, he quotes scripture three times, all three times out of the book of Deuteronomy. That's interesting to me. The first time it's out of Deuteronomy 8, and the second two times out of Deuteronomy 6. Great study, both of those um, you can get to later on. But in Deuteronomy 8, he is, he is quoting a scripture that comes out of a section where, where Moses is reminding the people of Israel about what God did while they were in the wilderness. I love the, the correlation here. The Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. God led the Israelites where? Out into the wilderness. Jesus was out there for 40 days. The Israelites were out there for 40 years. He's remembering, he's reminding them and saying, and in that particular section of Deuteronomy 8, he's saying, remember what God did out there. What did he do? He fed them, millions of them, for 40 years he fed them. 40 years. Every day, food's right there. Remembering that supernatural provision. Remember, God led Jesus out by quoting this scripture. What he's saying, hey, God was able to take care of the millions of Israel. He is able to take care of me. And when it's time, God will meet this need in my life. I don't need to do this on my own. God has already told me that he's going to do it. God can take care of me. Rather than taking matters in his hand, he chose to trust and obey God and his word. Jesus trusted God to meet his need when God deemed it the right time. And that's where we usually stumble, isn't it? We have a need, it's not being met, and we get tired of waiting, we get frustrated. 
it becomes too hard. I shared a few weeks ago that I'm trying to do something with my health, trying to get in shape. And I know round is a shape, but it's not the shape I want. You know what? I'm not having fun doing it. I don't like it. It's hard. And, and I have wanted to quit time and time again. Every time, you know, if the TV's on, every commercial, every stinking commercial has got a big sloppy cheeseburger on it or a pizza or something. It's hard. But God has told me to do something. And I want to quit. I want to quit so bad. But God said, no. No. You be faithful. Trust me and obey me. What needs and desires do you have that you are being tempted with today? We all have something probably. There's something inside of us that we're being tempted. And the question we have, do you know what God's word says about it? Do you know what God has promised you on that thing? There are so many of them. Just a, a quick example. You know, God created humans with sexual desires, right? With my, with my, let's say it. We can say sex in church, okay? <laughs> if God talks about it, we can talk about it. He created us with these desires. But then he gave us clear instructions in his word. He, he told us that, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's to be confined to a, a monogamous Male-female covenant marriage. And there only. Are you trusting and obeying God in that area? It's humanly possible to resist any temptation. Does, does anybody agree with me on that? It's possible... To resist all temptation. Anybody want to say yes, it is? It is possible. It is possible to do it. Jesus proved that to us. The interesting thing about temptation, they usually only come one at a time. So how many do you have to resist at a time? Just one. Just one. Just the one in front of you. You resist that one, and then you resist the one that comes after that, and the one that comes after that, and the one that comes after that. Well, Jesus did that. He did that for his whole life. Resisted every temptation that came. And you've got to know it. It wasn't only these three that came to him. He was facing temptation all along the way because Satan wasn't going to leave him alone. He was, trying to, he was trying to get in the way of God's plan to save the world from its sin. And so Satan was relentless, you can imagine, with him in that area. It's possible to do it, but we have a fallen nature, and it makes it hard, doesn't it? Yeah, somebody say, yes, it does. Yes, Rick, it's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. That's why we're so appreciative of God's grace. I believe it's possible to resist every temptation. I wish I could say to you right now that I do. I don't. 
I am tempted to cheat, you know, on my whole diet thing. And I haven't for months, Kelly, I promise. Really, I haven't. Yeah, sure. I haven't this week anyways. Today is the first day of the week, so. Oh, the social Sunday is today. Oh, no. And so when we do, we do give in. Because that's probably going to happen. You know, it's possible not to, but we probably will. If we do, we have God's grace. And we can go to him and we can, we can receive his forgiveness and be cleansed of that. That's a, such an amazing and a beautiful thing. But brothers and sisters, I want, I want you to understand, it is possible to resist temptation. And I'm going to explain to you later on at the end of the message the three things that we must probably be working on if we want to get to the place where we're better at resisting temptation. You live your story. Live the story that God is writing in you, of Christ in you, by trusting God to meet your every need when He deems it's time. When He deems it's time. And by obeying His Word until He does. You want to live God's story out in your life? You've got to let Him meet your needs. You've got to stop taking matters into your own hands and, and meeting your needs your way when you want to and let God do it when He wants to. So Jesus resists the first temptation, but the devil's not done yet. He's a punk. Second temptation, the lust of the eye. Verses 5 through 7, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. It's interesting, Satan is offering him all the kingdoms of the earth. Does he have the authority to do that? The answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. He has authority over the nations today. He did then, he does today. And he will until Jesus comes back the next time and establishes his kingdom on the earth and deals with Satan forever. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. Paul refers to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the God of this age. Satan offers something to Jesus, interestingly, that God has already promised to Jesus. In Psalm 2, 7 and 8, I declare the decree the Lord has said to me, this is the Lord God, the Father has said to me, the Son, you are my son, today I'll begotten you. That should sound familiar to us. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. What Satan is offering him is a shortcut, the easy way. He's saying, I'll give you what God has already promised you so that you don't have to suffer to get it. He's offering him the crown, without the cross. One little problem with that. Actually, it's not a little problem. It's an enormous problem. Without the cross, there is no atonement. 
Without the cross, there is no real forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, there is no eternal salvation. It's a temptation to take the easy way, the shortcut, the path of least resistance. That all you have to do is worship before me, and all this will be yours. Now, what Satan is not doing, he's not calling Jesus to you know, to totally abandon God the Father and come over to his side. That's not what he's asking him to do. He's saying just one momentary act of worship. Just bow down to me. Just do it real quick. Boop, boop, and you're you're good. One little act of worship. One small compromise. One little thing, and all this will be yours. Jesus responds, verse 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. One of the things we need to understand. Any compromise in your life is a form of idolatry. Now, we we don't, as modern American Christians, we don't think about idolatry that much. We don't talk about it that much. Because, yeah, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, I'm going to take a guess right now, none of you would bow down and worship Satan right now, right? Say yes, I would never do that. Yeah, yeah I would reject that automatically. You know, if there was some sort of a carved image or a metal object over here, you wouldn't bow down and worship that either, right? I mean, that we wouldn't do that. That's not what we do. Maybe, and never mind. We wouldn't bow down and worship those things. Usually our idolatry is much subtler than that. In fact, most people wouldn't even notice you were doing it. As you're bowing down and worshiping the idol of self. Very often, we put self at the center of our lives. And when we do, we are practicing idolatry. And we are taking worship away from God. This this particular thing is called the lust of the eye because the the eye sees something. It comes from outside. There's something outside of our life that we see it or we imagine it in our minds and we say to ourselves, that would make my life better. That would add value to my life. That would, make, that would make everything better in my life. And then we, we infuse that thing with power. The power to make our life better. And then we start centering our life around that thing. This object can be a material thing. It could be money. It could be a house or a car, either one you have or you don't have. It can be a relationship. You know, when you're, when you're young in life, you might put, you know, that prospective spouse in that place. Or when, when you are married, trying to put your spouse in a place where they can make your life better. I, I got to tell you this. As much as I love Kelly, she cannot make my life better. 
Now God can use her to make my life better, but it's not her that's going to do it. It's God through her that will make my life better. It can be our children. You know, if we had children, you know, our life would be better. And then it's, if we had better children, we would, our life would be better. <laughs> or as our children get older, we start imagining that their activities and outside events will make our life better. You know, if they go to a good college, my life will be better. We, start, we put all kinds of things in there. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing that we do when we start giving power to something that is not God and saying, that will make my life better. It could be a job or a position, reputation, all sorts of things. Understand something. We were created with a need to worship God. God. Every human, every human that has ever existed on this planet was created for one purpose, to worship God. Now, the major segment of the world doesn't get that. They're not doing it, they have no desire to do it, or they're completely ignorant of that. But that's why they exist, to glorify God, to worship God. And, and we need to understand, that's not, we're not talking about what we do on Sunday mornings. You know, this, this is, okay, we do worship here, but that's not what worship is. Worship is your whole life. Worship is every thought, every act, every choice, every decision, everything that is you is worship. It's either worship of God or it's worship of fill in the blank. And brothers and sisters, I'm guessing that there's a, probably a lot of blanks you could fill in. And that doesn't make you weird. I know I've got some I'm, I'm still trying to erase in my life. Okay, I've got to stop worshiping that. I've got to stop worshiping my physique. <sighs> oh. Everything we do can be an act of worship and ought to be used to serve God and can be. I'm not talking about all of you becoming, you know, priests and nuns and, and, you know, getting into, that's what I'm talking about. That's not it at all. We ought to be able to worship God and serve him wherever we are. Even at Costco, we could do it, right? Bonnie, she's about ready to leave out here in a minute. So she has to leave early. All of us can do it. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be worshiping and serving God on the 91 freeway. I know that sounds impossible. If Jesus could, you know, resist temptation in the wilderness after 40 days, you can worship God on the 91 freeway. Doesn't matter where we are. You can worship and serve God wherever you are. And, and it's all about putting him in that center spot. When you put him in that center spot, then everything that comes around it is touched by him in the center. You don't have to change what you're doing. You just have to change the center of what you're doing the focus of what you're doing. To live your story, to live the story that God is writing in your life in a way that glorifies God, that brings Christ into the center of the story the way you should, you need to examine your desires and motives. You need to ask yourself, why do I want what I want? Why do I want what I want? Do I want what I want so that I can worship God better? So that I can serve God more? 
why do I want what I want because it'll make my life better? Who's in the center of that second one? I am. I am. Now here's what Jesus is communicating to us. Does God love you? Oh, thank you. Yes, he loves you. How much? A lot. Infinitely more than you can hope or imagine. You can't imagine how much God loves you. He loves you so much. Does he want to satisfy your needs, wants, and desires? Absolutely he does. And what Jesus is saying here, hey, I know, I know. I could take this shortcut, and that would be way better for me not to suffer. Matter of fact, not even to put up with all these people for the next three years. He's got to put up with these knuckleheads for three years, including the disciples. Oh, my gosh. He's got to put up with them. He could, have, he, could have, he could have bypassed all of that. He says, that'd be way better for me. But it's not what God wants. It says, it says of him that he, that he saw that and, and despising the shame, despising the suffering, despising how uncomfortable it made him, he went to the cross, deliberately went to the cross, knowing that was God's will looking beyond it to the glory that was coming. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. We need to look beyond our wants, our desires, our needs, and ultimately focus on the glory of God and let Him satisfy our needs and wants and desires. Let Him tell you how to do it. He's good. He loves blessing His kids. You've got to let Him do it. And I've got to pick up the pace here a little bit. Third and final temptation. The pride of life. Verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, unless you dash your foot against a stone. This is an interesting one. There is a Jewish tradition that says the Messiah will miraculously appear at the top of the temple. So I, I'm not sure where the tradition came from, but there is a tradition, and it probably existed at the time that Satan makes this temptation to him. The Jews, the Jews that are down there, and you've got to know the courtyard was, was packed with people. All of those Jews down there are expecting the Messiah <clears throat> to just appear. Whoop, whoop, there he is. Why don't you show them you're who he is? You're the Messiah. Jump. God said that he'll protect you. He'll carry you. He'll save you. You won't get hurt. And, and understand, you know, there, there's a couple different thoughts about this. The top of the temple, probably about 90 to 100 feet. Okay, so you jump off 90 to 100 feet. What's going to happen? Splat. You're going to die. Others believe it was on a, a different part of the Temple Mount that was, went down to the Kidron Valley, Valley, which was like 400 feet drop, which, you know, if 100 feet didn't kill you, 400 would do the job really well. So it's a dangerous thing. He's saying, throw yourself off. God's not going to let you get hurt. Satan is a devious punk. He's quoting Scripture at Jesus, who is what? The author of Scripture. Hey, hey, you wrote it. Do it. He's saying to him, 
prove that God will keep his word. That's what he's saying. Prove that God will keep his word. Jesus responds again, verse 12. Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. To tempt the Lord, the idea there is to attempt to force God to act. That's what it means. To force God to act. Kent Hughes refers to this as rationalized disobedience. You ever, ever hear somebody, I know none of you have ever done it, but you probably heard somebody rationalize why they should disobey God. Anybody? I, I get to hear it pretty regularly. From none of you, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I need to do this because God made this promise or did this thing, and, you know, and they rationalize, they explain away why they should do something that God clearly said, no, don't do that. You know, kind of using another common example is, you know, that, you know, the, you know God, God says, do not be unequally yoked, right? You know, we know that he says that. That means that unbelievers and believers, you've got to be careful about the relationships that you get into. One of the big ones is God says, don't marry unbelievers. Christians, do not marry an unbeliever. I promise, promise, promise pain and suffering if you do it. But they do it, they do it all the time. Oh, but you don't understand. I love her. I love him. God wouldn't let me love him if I wasn't supposed to be with him. But you're not supposed to marry them because they're unbelievers. They do it anyway. They do it anyway. And then they expect God to save them because now they're married. Oh, be careful. And it's not just that. There's so many other ways you could be doing that, doing something like that, knowing that God says not to do that, and yet you do it anyway. Now, God may keep his word. He may save that person. He may do that good thing that you're hoping he'll do because he is a gracious God. But he might also let you experience the consequences from your disobedience. God is not obligated to respond on your behalf when you are out of God's will. Did you catch that? He is not obligated to you. Not obligated. If you're out of his will, he owes you nothing. Matter of fact, what you probably deserve is some sort of chastisement. Maybe punishment. And God is not, he is a, he is a good father but he's good in all ways, including giving us the discipline we need when we need it, when we rebel against him. So don't expect God to respond when you rationalize your disobedience and try to convince the world around you that it's okay for you to disobey God, even though God says clearly not to do something. Don't, don't expect God to bless that. It's the height of arrogance for us to think we can force God to do anything. You can't force God to do something. Nothing. To live your story, you must let God be God. Let him be God. Don't test him to see if he'll keep his word. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. I'm going to test God to see if he'll keep his word. You know, that, when does God keep his word? 
Always. God always keeps his word. We never have to question that. We don't have to test him. I'm going to test and see if God will keep his word. And I hear this all the time. You know, test God. No, don't test God. That's a bad idea. You fail. You test God. You fail. Because God is always right. He always keeps his word, including letting you experience the consequences of rationalized disobedience. The devil has played his last card here. We see in verse 13 what he does next. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, I find that interesting, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He did everything he could. He's got Jesus in this terribly weakened state. He was probably about as vulnerable as it was possible for him to be in this moment. And Satan came at him with all guns blazing and failed. Jesus resisted every temptation. But notice, notice, wouldn't it be nice if we could just resist the devil and he would just then leave us alone after that? Until an opportune time. What does that mean? He's coming back. He's coming back. He would wait for the next time of weakness and attack again. First Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The devil is real, and he's looking for the weak. He's looking for those who are not attending to their faith. So how do we resist him? Well, we do it the same way Jesus did. Three quick things. Literally going to be very quick because I have a minute and ten seconds. First thing, full of the Spirit. Actually, I have two extra minutes because that's wrong. Good. (laughs) (sighs) Full of the Spirit. You know, it says at the very beginning of this text that he was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. We've got to understand something. If we want to resist temptation, then we need to yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that means giving ourselves up to him, allowing the Holy Spirit to be our leader, to guide us, to be our control, to fill us to overflowing, opening ourselves up to it. That's not something you're going to do overnight. You need to learn how to do it. But it's a process that we go through, and we learn how to give more and more of ourselves to Christ. And ultimately, there's a part of that is getting rid of the junk in your life. You know, if you have a garage like mine, there is, I mean, it's not, it's a mess. You can't find anything in there. There's no room for anything good in my garage because it's filled with junk. The same thing is true of our lives. Sometimes we got junk in our lives that makes it so that the Holy Spirit can't fill us the way that he wants to. Find some of that stuff, get rid of it. Yep, stop. Get on to the next thing, Rick. Trust and obey him. Second thing, full of the word of God. Three times, three times that the devil came and tempted him and, and Jesus responded exactly the same way all three times. He quoted scripture. You've got to know what God's word says about the things of life. And I'm telling you, some believe in this, you know, that, you know, yeah, we can't, yeah, you've got to get away from the Bible because it's like old. You know, it's not relevant to today. Yes, it is. It has answers for absolutely everything in life. There is nothing that will come into your life that the Word of God doesn't have an answer for. Not one thing. 
You want to stand against the attacks of the enemy? You want to stand in such a way that you are living a life that is good and rich and right? Then know what God's Word says about life. Know it. The better you know it, the better your life will be. I promise that. Jesus' response to all three tests, temptations, was to quote what God had said on that topic. He knew what God said on those topics. Third thing, empty of self. Empty of self. Jesus wasn't concerned with his own needs, his wants, his desires. He knew there was a Father in heaven that loved him more than was humanly possible to love someone and knew that he would take care of him, that he would provide for him, that he would be his strength, his fortress, his provision, all of those things. He lived to do God's will, not his. He said that over and over again. I'm not here to do what I want. I'm here to do what God wants. Temptations are a fact of life. There's no escaping them. Every last one of us, you will not, I promise you, you will not get through the rest of the day without facing at least one temptation. I promise you. It's not possible. Temptations come. If you get into a car, you will face temptation. Because some knucklehead's going to you know, act like they own the road instead of you owning the road. <laughs> they are tests. Every last one of them is a test. God is testing you. He's already written your story. A perfect story. And he will give us opportunities to do just as Jesus did. To prove that God was the author of his story. And every chance, every opportunity, every temptation that comes our way, every test that's presented before us is the same thing. It's God testing us. Will you stay with my story or will you write your own? Every temptation is a, a temptation to rewrite the story, to write the, rewrite the whole thing, to rewrite a chapter, to re rewrite a paragraph, to rewrite a sentence, to rewrite a word. It's to rewrite part of God's story. And if you rewrite God's story, you're going from perfect to something less than perfect. God has written your story. And when the opportunity comes to write your own story, when that temptation comes, when the test comes, you need to do what Jesus did, and that is stick with what God wrote. Amen?